Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's Greenhouse Environmental Humanities Book Talks. I'm Finar Jørgensen. I'm Dali Jørgensen. And today we are joined by Anna Burton, uh, who is a teaching fellow at University of Liverpool in uh, the UK. She will talk about her new book, Trees in 19th Century English Fiction, the Silvicultural Novel that came out with Routledge this year. So we just get straight to it. Anna, the floor is yours. Great, thank you. Um, so, hello everyone. Um, firstly, I'd just like to thank Dolly and Finn for inviting me to talk about my work and to thank all of you who's, who've attended today too. Um, I think the Greenhouse Book Talks are such an excellent way of getting to know and think about new ideas and ongoing work in the environmental humanities, so I'm very grateful to be included in the series. Um, and my book, Trees in 19th Century English Fiction, The Silver Cultural Novel, as Finn said, came out in March this year. Um, and it's a study of a network of writers and writings that celebrate the aesthetic, socio-political, scientific, ecological, geographical and historical value of trees. Um, it's focused on the long 19th century rather than specialising in the Romantic or Victorian periods individually, partly because, as my research shows, it's hard to contain the study of trees to any particular era or human scale. And also because the span of the time I cover here, so roughly 1791 to 1891, was such an interesting stretch of evolving arboreal awareness in the cultural imagination. So between the end of the 18th century and the start of the 20th, Britain underwent rapid societal and cultural change um, as a result of growing industrialization and urbanization. And this in turn had a variety of impacts on how trees and the natural world more broadly were perceived and valued. And today I'm gonna give a bit of an overview of how my book approaches this topic, notably how the two key and interconnected aspects of the book developed. So how I developed a silver cultural tradition of tree writing and how this then informed my understanding of how trees were represented in the 19th century English novel. So, Interestingly, this work didn't actually start with trees. Um, it grew out of my PhD thesis, which focused on the afterlives of the late 18th century picturesque movement, sort of within the literary landscapes of the long 19th century novel. Um, and here I explored the writings of William Gilpin, who wrote about the concept of the picturesque and how the spectator of landscape and art might observe their environment in accordance with painterly qualities. So he also wrote about his tours of Britain and his observations of the prospects and environments that he encountered there. However, the text of his that I was most interested in when I was researching um, was his Remarks on Forest Scenery, first published in 1791. Um, and this is a study of remarkable trees and tree spaces. So from single specimens to clumps and belts of trees on parkland to forests and woodlands more broadly. Uh, and it lastly features his reflections on the arboreal environments of the New Forest in Hampshire, where he lived and worked as a vicar. Um, and what I was soon most interested in wasn't how this was a picturesque text, but in how this volume seemed to defy any clear sense of classification. So in this work, Gilpin certainly talks about the picturesque value of trees. So to be found in, say, the spray of the branches or the light and shade in a forest, for example. But these remarks also seemed very similar to the observation of natural phenomena that we see in natural history writing too. So at this time, natural history wasn't strictly differentiated into different areas like botany, geology, zoology or meteorology, say. But it was a way of viewing, collecting and recording the natural worlds that later developed into these individual disciplines. Um, and Gilpin drew on these kind of aspects of these kinds of study, rather. So, for instance, in a discussion of different lichens found on tree bark, the visual value of the lichen itself, so its colour and its texture, was situated alongside an identification of which species it was and how it grows. So while Gilpin would never have identified himself as a natural historian per se, nor is this a kind of um, scientific validation of his picturesque ideas, but how he writes about the visual appearance of trees and tree spaces, very much aligns with the broad ranging fields of natural history. Much more than this, in discussing different tree species and specific trees within and beyond the New Forest, 
I found that Gilpin often referred back to and quoted the authority of other travellers, historians and natural historians that came before him, notably John Evelyn, the author of Silver, and other members of the Royal Society too. And as my research then developed into thinking about Gilpin's influence on 19th century literature of varying kinds, I found that Gilpin himself was then subsequently being referred to as an authority on trees in other kinds of writing as well. So in 19th century books and catalogues by the likes of John Claudius Luden, Jacob George Strutt, Mary Roberts and William Stephen Coleman, Gilpin's arboreal anecdotes and observations from this text were being quoted and discussed. And here he's referred to variously as a guide to the new forest by William Howitt. His work is aligned with the Romantic Poets by John Wise. And then as a kind of forward thinking, actually natural historian by Gilbert Thomas Burnett. So just as Gilpin aligned himself with the likes of John Evelyn, 19th century writers were affiliating themselves with the arboreal discourses of remarks on forest scenery and in a variety of ways too. And much more than this, Gilpin's text itself appeared in new edited forms. So in 1834, Thomas Lauder published an extensively edited collection, uh, edited version rather, of Gilpin's text, which included a critical commentary of Gilpin's work, sort of interspersed through the original discussion. Now, the text is sort of abundant with Lauder's claims such as, you know, Mr Gilpin has fallen into an error here and we're disposed to think that Mr Gilpin hardly does justice to an elm, whatever that is. Um, and then in an attempt to sort of save the author's memory and reputation from Lauder's additions and corrections, the natural historian Francis George Heath presented and published a new edition of Gilpin's Forest Scenery in 1879. So Gilpin's work was pivotal to this ongoing and intersecting conversation about remarkable trees, tree species and tree spaces well into the Victorian period. And this is when I developed the concept for what I've termed a silvicultural tradition of writing. So a long-standing network of texts wherein writers cross-reference and borrow anecdotes about significant specimens, forests and woodlands from one another. And through this, there's a kind of ongoing inheritance of authority that can be traced across, across generations of tree-oriented study. And I use Gilpin as the cornerstone to illustrate this idea, but I also wanted to stress that it's not only associated with Gilpin, but having a key writer like this allowed me to map out the kind of branching intertextual threads and narratives that shaped arboreal knowledge into the 19th century. So to give a specific example of how this works in my mind, in Remarks on Forest Scenery, Gilpin recalls a tree in the New Forest called the Cadnam Oak. So it's a deciduous tree which supposedly grows buds on and around Christmas Day. And this is a tree which features in early tree writings. It gets a mention in Evelyn's Silver, for instance. Um, but, as noticed, but as noted in Forest Scenery, Gilpin wanted to understand and unravel this unseasonable phenomenon in more detail. So he notes that he went to see the tree in the New Forest, he paid it a visit, but he was too early to see any new growth. So he asked for a local landlord of a pub to send him some twigs from the tree as soon as they arrived. And the landlord did this and to try and get to the bottom of this occurrence, Gilpin then proceeded to send these twigs to a Mr. John Lightfoot. So he was a botanist and member of the Royal Society who then replied that he couldn't account for it either. And so Gilpin writes that this unusual germination must just be the result of weather, really. He couldn't put, put it down to anything else. And then, so records of this tree and this kind of experiment of sorts can then be found in various 19th century writings. So Gilpin's anecdote features in Luden's Arboretum Britannicum and can be found as an item of interest in various contemporary periodicals, uh, journals and diaries. And in the book, I trace this kind of silver cultural thread as far as a 1936 article in the Forestry Commission Journal, wherein a new forest ranger at the time recalls Gilpin's anecdote and Lightfoot's response, but also argues that he saw the tree bud in early January himself and collected acorns for future preservation. So he kind of echoes Gilpin's own actions in that. And I myself got in touch with the current forest ranger of the New Forest, uh, who admitted that the tree no longer exists and there's no record of these acorns ever being kept. And so ended my investigation. Um, and of course, this is just one specific example that I followed. But in mapping these tree texts into textualities here and more broadly, I could see this kind of accumulative branching of knowledge surrounding trees and 
how cultural perceptions of these entities both persist and evolve over time. And this silver cultural tradition, as I've termed it, has no fixed origin, nor is it defined by any form or genre of literature. As illustrated by Gilpin's own approach, thinking broadly about what tree writing is raises interesting issues about where nature writing and environmental literature meets science and what constitutes natural history knowledge in the first place. And I think that line of thought is particularly valuable now, you know, when more than ever we need to be thinking about how we as humans reframe how we use, engage with and perceive the natural world and our place within it. So in my book, I outline this tradition of tree writing in the first chapter. And in the second half of my first chapter, um, building on the invaluable environmental history work of Charles Watkins, uh, Paul Elliott, Stephen Daniels and Tom Williamson, I provide a kind of contextual overview of how through this period of growing industrialization and urbanization, the cultural perception of trees was reshaped in many respects. So this can be, you know, in terms of the laws protecting public access to spaces like the New Forest and Epping Forest, to how the implementation of the railways had an impact on the cultivation of orchards, uh, to the concept of the green belt as a result of increasing pollution, the development of parks and arboretums in cities, and the invention of like new tools to transplant trees without damaging their roots. So across the 19th century, understanding of how technological and scientific advancement was having an impact on green and arboreal space developed and had a corresponding influence on how these spaces were perceived and treated. So in Paul Redmond's excellent book, Story Ground, the author talks about how during this time of intense change to our landscapes, there was a wider felt sense of connection between landscape and the past, and that it was art and literature that helped to shape landscape within individual and cultural psyches. So responding to Redmond's work and through the premise of the silver cultural tradition, I think about how trees become storied landmarks on an individual and collective basis. Moreover, in, in the subsequent four chapters of the book, I think about how this web of accumulating arboreal discourse influenced the novelistic framing of trees, paying particular attention to the representation of trees and textual strategies in realist novels of Jane Austen, Elizabeth Gaskell and Thomas Hardy. So in my chapter on Austen's works, I think about how in novels such as Sense and Sensibility, Mansfield Park and Emma, characters not only frequently discuss trees, but they're unable to contain them to a single topic. So through thinking about the representation of trees on landed estates and how they're cared for and talked about by the landowners and characters in these novels, I reflect on how Austen engages with the works and opinions of Gilpin and Evelyn, and also consider how in the physical presence of a boundary of trees, often at the park wall on these estates, through these spatial arrangements and how characters navigate and respond to these spaces, Austin gestures towards contemporary socio-political and agricultural concerns surrounding land improvement. Um, and in my chapter on the novels of Elizabeth Gaskell, I consider both the presence and absence of trees in these texts and how trees, or the lack of them, reflect a variety of mid-19th century responses to trees in the country and the city and their supposed impacts on public health in these environments. So in North and South and Ruth, there are descriptions of and conversations about trees creating unhealthy air that might result in illnesses such as typhoid, for instance. So here Gaskell engages with a web of ideas about the role of arboreal space in contemporary studies of medical geography and how the placement of trees in various discourses were considered alternatively as healthy and unhealthy to humans. Um, and I also reflect on how, through the character of Margaret Hale in North and South, and to quote Stacey Alamo, through this character's transcorporeal and oscillating relationship with the woodscapes of the New Forest in that novel, Gaskell engages with and explores this set of public notions surrounding trees and well-being. And then in the final two chapters of the book, I consider the novels of Thomas Hardy and how the author incorporates actual trees and woodland locations from southwest England into the fictional topographies of these texts and how these arboreal associations are not just setting, but active agents within the narratives themselves. So through the specific study of the placement of and description of the Billy Wilkins tree in The Woodlanders, and how this tree is gradually edited out of, across different editions of the novel, I consider how Hardy's fictional em environment engages with and participates in the layers of memory and actual localised history of that oak. 
And then in considering Hardy's test of the d'Urbervilles next, I think about how trees and their kind of growing and fading silvicultural associations in many respects define the heroine's travels within and across the landscapes of the novel. So in focusing on the location of Blackmore Vale in particular here and how Hardy responds to historical and contemporary accounts of this ancient woodland, I examine how the text builds on this network of pre-existing arboreal history and therefore blurs the line between fictional and non-fictional narratives that form part of this silvicultural tradition. So each of the author-oriented chapters engage with a different arboreal context across the broad span of the 19th century. However, the representation of trees and tree spaces in these texts are more than mere setting or just an echo of the non-fiction arboreal dis discourses. The significant contribution of the novel form to the silvicultural tradition of tree writing resides in how characters read, use and navigate arboreal space. So understanding how trees and their associations are sites of human arboreal interest and understanding how novels act out this process is key to discerning the role and composition of novelistic environments more broadly, but also significantly how we as humans have sort of continued to respond to trees, use them as intermediaries between the wider world and ourselves and how this developed across the long 19th century specifically. Um, I think that's it. I think that's my time up now, but I'm certainly happy to answer any questions or expand on anything that I've covered just then. Thank you, Anna. That was a great introduction um, to your book. And so I was thinking here about specifically in the, the UK context, this idea of the ancient tree. So the, the individual old tree, and you mentioned the Cadman tree then, that, that is in this kind of category that gets stories told about it. So do you find that in these novels, there is, there is a difference between those kind of individual old tree that perhaps takes on a personification, uh, you know, an, an anthropomorphism about it um, as a living being, then trees in general, even a tree kind of species? Yeah, I think, say, to give the example again of the Billy Wilkins tree that I talk about in my chapter on the Woodlanders, that tree in itself has got the name of, of a human being, you know, um, I think it was named, it's not really clear, but I think it was named after a kind of um, forester in that, that area, um, or an agricultural worker of, of some sort uh, on that estate. So, to that extent, yes, and, and in, in terms of like the kind of names that, that we give trees. Um, and I think in the 19th century, you know, trees were personified to the extent, you know, if, if one was felled or, or a sort of substantial storm knocked a tree down, that kind of thing, then there was the equivalent of like an obituary in the newspapers, you know, this, this tree's fallen down in Hyde Park and this is the kind of history and this is where it's located. And um, in the... Novels I kind of look at, there aren't sort of personifications that we might get in kind of, I suppose, gothic literature or, or sort of more fantasy oriented, oriented genres, that kind of thing. But there's definitely a sense of um, trees being kind of likened to humans, you know, the kind of branches and leaves or its head. Um, in a letter by Jane Austen that I refer to in the book, she talks about how trees in a storm sort of knock off the heads of one another as they sort of fall over in a domino effect. In, in the Chawton Garden. Um, so yes, to that extent, but there isn't this kind of personification in, in a kind of gothic way. Um, but yeah. Really interesting. Um, the other thing that I was thinking about um, when you were talking about Gilpin then and his picturesque, um, I was wondering how he defines picturesque then in in terms of these trees so what is it about them or about the scene that he considers picturesque well in terms of like a forest it can be the appearance of the forest from sort of externally so if you can see it from a distance how that kind of looks internally as well um it's quite ecological when he sort of thinks about the internal sort of environment of a forest. So how, I suppose, plants sort of feature like ferns and this kind of, I suppose, aesthetic interplay of other plants, other trees and kind of light and shade. So he's very much still drawing on these kind of painterly qualities. 
And that sort of extends to individual trees too. So as I said before, it's kind of like the spray of the branches and the ramification of the branches um, and how the, the trunk or the bowl supports those branches and, and sort of, I suppose, just how aesthetically pleasing it is, certainly. But what I was interested in was how it sort of, how he sort of goes beyond that and how those sort of aesthetic observations how they sort of intersect with contemporary natural history writing they seem very similar in a way that wasn't apparent in his other work in just his picturesque observations of a landscape for instance great um ellen um you have a question i'll unmute you you can ask it oh, there we go hi anna um I really appreciate this kind of literary and cultural approach to real landscapes because I actually really think that that the way people imagine and think about their their space is just really important. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm really I'm really excited to read this because it was actually 19th and 18th century um, works about German forests that made me start thinking about medieval German forests, okay. um, and I'm curious that. The thing that jumps out of my work with forests is the many different ways that um, Christianity was incorporated into pre-modern European understandings of not only individual trees, but kind of trees as a whole, and like the, the different species of trees that mattered to different kinds of discussions about the nature of the cross and things like that. I'm curious, you were, I was thinking about North and South and the way that it um, kind of addresses like identity and modernity and how do, they, do these authors at all wrestle with like ancient religion versus modern religion? Do they bring Christianity into their conversations? In terms of the authors I look at, I, I don't think so explicitly or as far as I'm aware. Um, in terms of kind of, Religion is a kind of, Elizabeth Gaskell had quite a good awareness of kind of folkloric um, mm. and sort of paganism around, particularly of Lancashire in England. Um, so a lot of her kind of work, she seems to be aware of, you know, particular species and, and their localised and sort of regional associations. Um, and similarly with Hardy too, there's very much this focus on, let's uh, say with Tess of the D'Urbervilles in particular, the kind of accumulation of, um, I think that uh, in the sort of episode when um, Tess is is raped in Cranbourne Chase in a, in a sort of arboreal environment, um, the narrator talks about you know the the generations of effectively young women who have had the similar similar treatment by their medieval ancestors. So it's kind of not necessarily I wouldn't say religious or nodding to religion, but it's kind of this I suppose long past and in terms of the past the kind of folkloric and pagan aspects that that kind of distant past evokes if that makes sense yeah um, yeah that's super interesting because medieval people also wrestle medieval authors wrestle with like how to think about trees as being older than christianity <laughs> so yeah super cool thank you thank you and we have a, a question from Christina Aragon, who is currently starting a PhD on British arboreum, um, arboretums, okay. and would love to know if you came across them in your stories in this fiction, um, visits to arboretums as places that people would go. Was there any influence, do you think, with these authors and how they wrote about trees and the increased popularity of those spaces as well as then you know the study and botany of trees um do we know if those people who end up there were somehow inspired by the kind of fiction literature um, that you're looking at i can't think of any explicit fictional examples certainly not with the authors i deal with um but there's um, i mean i'm sure christine is already aware there's a great book on british arboretums in the 19th century by charles 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 watkins and paul elliott and there's a lot of detail in there about british arboretums and, and how they came about um and i kind of looked at as well um how like sort of contemporary newspapers of of the opening of the derby arboretum so the first arboretum in the uk that kind of thing i don't think there's any reference to arboretum visits 
that I can think of, but there's certainly visits to green spaces in the city. Um, so particular again in Elizabeth Gaskell, so thinking of Mary Barton in particular, you know, the novel starts with a trip on a kind of holiday out to um, a rural environment and the way the description works, it kind of gradually becomes more rural, you know, the first hints of trees and then you go over a stile and then, then it becomes rural. So it's this kind of idea of getting out into rural, rural spaces and away from the city that sort of makes me think that Gaskell's kind of engaging with this idea of the green belt. So having these kind of zoned areas um, of rural and urban space, which is something that John Claudius Luden sort of talked about in his tree writings. So this idea of having kind of emanating city and rural zones uh, coming out of London. So like concentric circles, obviously this never happened, but this idea that, you know, you're not too far from a rural space. Um, and he sort of called for a di diversity of tree species in that as well. So in terms of arboretums, I'm, I'm not so sure, but um, in terms of uh, John Claudius Lugin might be a good place to think about kind of uh, gardens and gardening and, and sort of green spaces in the city. Um, but that's in a kind of non-fictional sense. I couldn't think of any fictional examples, sorry. So you talked a little bit about the... Um... I guess connections between fiction and nonfiction that there is, you know, scientific knowledge also influences then how they understand uh, trees and how they write about them. But do you see examples of, I mean, I'm thinking more like industrial change that human caused environmental change, I mean, often negative ones, you know, this discourse that we know really well from later on, how does that appear in, in the works that you study? Does it at all? Is it too early? So these kind of hints at industrialization having an impact on the environment, yeah. Yeah, yeah trees and, and I forests. Mean, the change yeah. of, of trees dying or or tree color changing, right? We know mm -hmm. like from the there's the studies of the moths yeah. that that the moth color changes because the trees are getting blackened, right, by by the industrial coal. Um, so yeah, do you see any kind of like that that kind of discussion in, in these novels? I think I, like I came across a scientific writing on kind of how leaves had sort of changed colour because of like the pollution, that kind of thing. Um, and I think, again, to go back to Gaskell, I think she's sort of very much aware of the impact of pollution on, I suppose, on, on cityscapes, really. It's for in, say, North and South, it's very much the new forest is kind of, to some extent, in opposition with her fictional version of Manchester and and that the kind of pollutants in Manchester that have an impact on the inhabitants. So um, the cotton that gets onto a character's lungs, lungs from a cotton mill or dye that gets into the water system, um, that kind of thing. Um, so she's aware of that, but then very much, I think green spaces are kind of recuperative refuges. Um, so in a short story by Gaskell called Libby Marsh's Three Eras, um, it's basically about a, a young woman who become, befriends a young child, an invalid boy from across the road in Manchester. Um, and she sort of takes him out of the city to a place called Dunham Park, which is an estate um, in Cheshire, sort of outside of Manchester. And, you know, he'd never seen trees before in his life. And it's kind of the human response to not really knowing what a tree is because you're living in a city, that kind of thing. And, and the impact of the natural environment on these city inhabitants that, that Gaskell focuses on. Um, but she doesn't necessarily focus on the impact of this, the kind of um, the degradation of the natural environment because of these pollutants and industrialization. On a related theme then, um, so some weeks ago we had Elizabeth Parker uh, on the book talks talking about the forest and eco-gothic and there, I mean, the forest that we're talking about is kind of the, you know, the dark and scary forest. And I'm not getting those vibes from the, the work that you look on, because again, it's the, the forest as, you know, you know, is, is in a way healthy, it's good for you and so on. So do you have any comments on, on that? Yeah, I think across each of the authors I look at, the, the commonality is that they kind of treat this kind of idea of an arboreal boundary. So the arboreal boundary onto any kind of woodland is a kind of refuge. Um, so in Jane Austen's novels around the park wall of an estate, you know, that's an escape from the open prospect and the scrutiny of an open prospect in Mansfield Park, say. 
Um, so it's a kind of refuge, but also that is bounded by the park walls. So to some extent, any external unwanted people on the estate are kind of excluded too. So there's a kind of weird socio-political thing with kind of arboreal spaces there. Um, in terms of Elizabeth Gastel, again, as I've kind of already touched on, this idea of um, green spaces being a kind of refuge from um, the city in North and South and Libby Marsh's three eras, and in fact, across any of her industrial works. Um, and in, say, Tess of the D'Urbervilles too, though Tess herself is kind of raped in a, in a woodland space, she very much harkens back throughout the novel to Blackmore Vale, which is the woodland around her home. So it's kind of, there are a number of mentions of her seeing Blackmore Vale in the distance as she moves throughout the novel and how her kind of emotional responses to that change as she sort of becomes further and further away from this environment. So I kind of think about, I suppose, arboreal spaces as refuges, not necessarily in terms of the forest, but kind of grouped trees in either parkland or, or in sort of woodlands more broadly as kind of refuges, I suppose. Um, and, you know, there's this really interesting idea that I talk about in my first chapter as well. Uh, Jason Appleton talks about this idea of the edge of the wood phenomenon. So this idea that we're all we've got this kind of biological need to go into woodland as a kind of a preservation thing. Um, and it's kind of this idea that we, we gravitate towards these spaces and that's part of our kind of biological makeup. Um, but, you know, very much that there is that kind of. I suppose, um, sinister aspects to forests in, in 19th century literature more widely, but that's not necessarily, necessarily what I touch on. Um, though to some extent, certainly the forest in Tess of the D'Urbervilles, Cranbourne Chase, you know, that's that's sort of a, a sinister space for Tess in, in and of herself. Um, but I suppose in dealing with real, realism as a genre, it's more in terms of how they navigate these spaces rather than um, the, their fear-inducing spaces. I think it was, it's so interesting to think about the way in which these writers and then Gilpin who came before are in, in some ways nature writers, right? Like today, nature writers and the way that they are blending uh, often kind of their own experience uh, fictions and non-fictions then together. So using and, and building on this scientific knowledge um, mm -hmm. that exists there. So. Um, so I was wondering in the, you know, Gilpin obviously does this, right? So he's using scientific knowledge about trees. Yeah. Um, but so in your novelists, in those fiction spaces, do you see that they also clearly were reading natural histories about trees? Um, you know, do they give you those kind of vibes, I guess, or indications that, that, that they know something technical? Or is it only perhaps personal observation that they've seen trees on their estate? I think for someone like Austin, she's like in her identification of certain trees, um, say her identification of the aesthetic appeal of like a blasted tree. So a tree that's been hit by lightning. Um, I think that's in Sense and Sensibility. This She sort of very much uses this discourse that Gilpin both uses in terms of the aesthetic appeal of that, um, but also kind of, the way Evelyn talks about, you know, the fact that you should get rid of these trees, though today we know that, you know, dying trees or, you know, trees that aren't completely whole, they, they are of ecological value. But then it was kind of like he, Evelyn didn't necessarily see that as a healthy thing to the surrounding trees. So I think Austin is very much engaging with kind of arboreal discourses um, in terms of kind of land ownership there and, and how trees should be cared for. Um, for Gaskell, yeah, I think more so in terms of how she engages with this idea that trees sort of propagated miasma. So this idea of like harmful vapours. So before germ, th germ theory, this idea that um, diseases were sort of propagated in, through the air and on the wind and the fact that profusions of trees weren't good spaces because they were damp and, you know, they, they sort of, there wasn't enough circulation. So these diseases propagated in these areas. But then at the same time, she was also very much engaged with the opposite of that. During the 19th century, this was an idea, but also the fact that sort of germ theory developed and it was sort of realised that, you know, these diseases like typhoid were coming through water rather than the air, that kind of thing. 
through Margaret Hale, you know, she had, Margaret Hale has a much more modern perspective of the delicious air of the New Forest. And again, that's very much kind of info informed by the picturesque idea of the ideal forest too. So these things kind of fold in on one another for Gaskell. Um, and for Hardy, certainly, yeah, I think he's very much aware of kind of the arboricultural, agricultural side of, of, of trees and tree writings and tree cultures. Uh, not necessarily scientific, though, of course, as um, Gillian Beers talked about previously in, in her work, you know, he's very much aware of kind of Darwinism and and, and um, that kind of thing and sort of contemporary science too. And, and that does inform his perception of trees. Um, but to some extent, they all kind of engage with these discourses, but I don't think there's any kind of explicit nod to, say, um, Luden or, or Gilpin or anything like that. So I was wondering a bit about method then in this, um, you know, as far as reading the novels themselves, but, but is there a, a yeah, visits to place or, or to trees or you yourself kind of thinking about trees or with trees that you went through as you were working on this? Um, I mean, I always, I very often, I'm quite a keen sort of hiker, so I'm very often in woodland spaces anyway, and I just sort of gravitate towards them. But I don't think that was necessarily part of my research um, to, to many extents, but I think I sort of started to see parallels between, I suppose, how my idea of a silvicultural tradition, so this idea of tree writings associating with one another, how this kind of also has a parallel in sort of modern thought on, on how trees communicate with one another. So through sort of networks, fungal networks, uh, which, you know, Peter Wallaben talks about um, in his sort of recent book on it. But, you know, this isn't sort of trees about trees sort of sharing nutrients. It's about the sharing of arboreal knowledge. So I think that kind of informed maybe how I thought about the silvicultural tradition and how trees can sort of have this sort of network and, and the sort of webs of their roots and their branches. Um, so weirdly, the the source of the tree itself, the form of the tree, maybe influenced me to some extent. So I was wondering about, uh, I mean, specific species of trees, and are there any that are overrepresented uh, in the literature? I mean, and 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 why? I mean, I expect that trees—they're not just descriptions of trees that you see around you, but they're also they express particular kinds of values, meanings, and so on. So, do you see any of that? Yeah, certainly. So, particularly, say with uh, Austin, for instance, on the estates, um, the trees there are very often described in terms of their species. So, uh, an avenue of limes on Mister Knightley's uh, Donwell estate, for instance, or the Spanish chestnuts that Darcy has, these are obviously very evidently sort of representative of their wealth and the wealth that the estate has, that I suppose they can afford these specimens to some extent. Um, so yeah, I, th I think that's sort of defined by sort of wealth and prosperity in, in that sense, certainly. Um, and I suppose with in terms of across the board, I mean, oaks tend to come up quite a lot because oaks have such, you know, I suppose because of their time scale and their age, uh, they're very often, you know, the, the, they are remarkable trees. They're very often veteran trees and have these multiple layers of history. Um, and then compare that, say, with something like the rowan, which, you know, they live for like 200 years, but they sort of seed quite quickly and sort of sit, tend to stay in one certain area. So the sort of different scales of, of how trees sort of appear in texts. I think this timeline issue is really interesting. So I was wondering in these novels, how, how they, how your, um, you know, authors deal with time and trees, do they play with the lifetime of a tree and the lifetime of people and generations and the way those work? Yeah, in particular, Thomas Hardy, I think. So the woodlanders in particular is kind of about, um, for anyone who hasn't read the novel, so this localised community, Hintock, um, and a lot of kind of arboricultural work goes on in this community. So, you know, um, inhabitants collect spars from trees and bark. This is part of their agricultural work. And it's a very self-contained environment. Um, and it's kind of the focus on the environment is on these outsider characters coming in and, and kind of disturbing the environment in and of itself. So it's how 
I suppose, hardy directors as the reader to see the kind of layers of tradition around this woodland and around these trees and how, to some extent, that's disrupted by people who come in and, and sort of create, say, new offshoots of kind of memory um, and how that's sort of shaped differently. Um, so, yeah, hardy is definitely a good one to think about in terms of layers. In fact, a lot of, as I talk about in the book, a lot of his descriptions of the woodland in Hintock are kind of almost like archaeological and geological you know layers of scrolls of leaves and that kind of thing it's very much kind of nodding to um ancient history that's kind of accumulated there as a kind of metaphor that's really interesting and gabriella has a question um about trees in other kinds of spaces so do any of your novelists talk about trees outside of Britain and in particular colonized spaces um, outside and do they function the same way or is there something different about trees in, in those kind of spaces? Yeah, um, of course this is focused on trees in you know English fiction so unfortunately it's mostly focused on them but I am aware there's you know there's a lot of um, other trees in, in that sort of context definitely. Um, in my book I talk about something called the upas tree which isn't actually a kind of real tree but it became a kind of hoax so this idea that this tree Gilpin writes about it and um, authors before him write about it too so Evelyn does have a mention of it and it's basically this tree that was so poisonous it had poisonous sap um, and it was so toxic to the extent that if anyone came near it um, it, it would kill them effectively and this tree was supposedly situated in Java in Indonesia um, and this tree became a kind of, I suppose, myth to some extent, but it was still being included in natural history texts alongside actual trees, say like the Cadnam Oak, that kind of thing. Um, and it sort of became sort of through these sort of silvicultural mentions, it came about that it was actually a hoax. But then it still sort of prol proliferated through tree sort of writing subsequently. So it's kind of like no one really cared whether it was real or not real. It was this kind of story of this, I suppose, this exotic other tree. Um, and that certainly informs fictional writing. So it was a, a metaphor that was used throughout the 19th century, the upas tree. Um, and it features in writings by Dickens and Thomas Carlyle. It's used in Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre too. So this idea that um, when Jane effectively finds out that Rochester is keeping his wife Bertha in, in the attic, he's talking to Jane afterwards once she's found out. And, you know, he says because of keeping her, I suppose, close to Bertha without having her know that she was being close to Bertha, he equates that to like keeping a child near an upas tree and covering with them with a cloak. So there's this really kind of problematic, obviously exotic othering of Bertha that's kind of coded through this metaphor of this exotic upas tree. Um, but I suppose moving beyond my book itself, you know, you've got things like um, The Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad, who's talking about the kind of destruction of, of Congolese forests for, for rubber and that kind of thing. So there's certainly a lot of, of novels and a lot of allusions to kind of exotic trees um, that are in many senses problematic, but are quite revealing about how trees were viewed within and outside of Britain and the empire. Hillary had a question about wondering if you could say anything or if you thought about um, the use of arboreal vocabulary in the novels that you do. And of course, you yourself um, in, in your presentation use words like, well, branching or rooted or offshoots, which not when you're not talking about trees, um, <laughs> but, you know, talking about your own work and and it's just normal right we we yeah. have these kind of metaphors in our vocabulary um do your novels use that kind of language and and what you know what do you think about it um i think i suppose a related example to that is jane austen's sense and sensibility so when marianne the character in the novel one of the characters in the novel is having a conversation with edward ferrers about appealing trees um, and in terms of whether the, you know Edward prefers smooth landscapes with sort of fine trees and she prefers quite rugged specimens that kind of thing so this kind of opposing um, preferences for kind of the aesthetic of trees 
Um, and Marianne talks about the jargon of him who first in, invented the term picturesque, which is a kind of nod, well, it's more or less an explicit nod to Gilpin, I suppose, and the kind of jargon of the picturesque per se and, and the picturesque jargon around trees. Um, so it's this, this idea that Marianne, the character herself, is using this jargon, but she's also criticising other characters for using it too and using that to sort of demonstrate their awareness of both the picturesque and trees. Um, so that's probably the most obvious example I can think of. Yes, I, I mean, I think it's just, it's so, well, we're so rooted in these kind of um, metaphors too in the in the way we think and, and structure language. Yeah. I wonder, I mean, how old are those metaphors? Is that a older like medieval thing or does it come in, in later times? I mean, I don't know. It's yeah, yeah. no, no. Um, I mean, it is interesting, though, that Gilpin refers back to Evelyn, right, as as this as an authority and that he's building on that. Um, mm -hmm. So I was wondering, I guess why he do you have a sense of why he's calling on that as as the authority and what value it it plays in his text um, to do that? Yeah, I, I think Evelyn Silver is perhaps one of well certainly the first kind of silver. I, I think so that a silver is a kind of catalog or, or book about trees, um, and it was kind of written to sort of encourage landowners to plant more diverse trees effectively on their estates and on their land, that kind of thing. But I think it was such a substantial tree text at this time that Gilpin engages with it, both to kind of include specimens that Evelyn talks about, I suppose, to sort of further the examples in his own work. So Evelyn alludes to this and this tree's been here since, since then, that kind of thing. Um, but again, it is also to align himself in the same way that 19th century writers do with Gilpin, with this authority, and I suppose to make himself, to put himself forward as this arboreal authority too. Um, and I think, I, I don't think it's to kind of, I suppose, validate his work, as I sort of said earlier, it's not to sort of make himself seem, his work seem more important, but I think, it kind of it, it's just an aspect of that that he has he refers to even and, and all these other writers it's kind of he's drawing these sort of threads together you know he alludes to various writers not just Evelyn too and various members of the Royal Society so to some extent it is scientific but I think he kind of extends that with his own aesthetic observations too. So I was wondering in a Edition, thinking about today, so writers right now, I don't know how much you read, um, you know, contemporary novels, um, but thinking about something like uh, Richard Power's Overstory, right, which is specifically dealing with trees. Yeah. Um, ha have you thought about uh, contemporary novel and how those are the same or different in the way that they handle trees from your writers? Um, I think for something like the Overstory, it's kind of, I think, encouraging the reader to kind of reevaluate how they perceive trees. I think in particular in, in this current moment, you know, of the climate crisis and, and that kind of thing. Whereas I don't think that's necessarily what the kind of context that say Austin, Gaskell and Hardy, though presumably they could see the kind of impacts of industrialization, that kind of thing. I don't think it was in, in the same kind of um in the same kind of way so I think a novel like the overstory sort of encourages to sort of re rethink how we view trees and sort of I suppose separate trees from the human perspective more so than say um the silver cultural tradition does like the silver cultural tradition is entirely um anthropocentric you know I'm aware of that it's very much how we as humans formulate our ideas about trees whereas I think in the overstory I think it's kind of encouraging us to look beyond that and look at the trees and their ecologies in, in their own right and having their own value and place in the natural world. On the topic of branching and offshoots I mean I wonder what's what's next for you then after this book are you continuing with trees are there themes from this book that you are you know continuing to draw on or are you well starting something entirely new? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think I can leave trees alone, to be honest. Um, I think I do want to continue to think about, and I'm in the process of sort of formulating my next project, and I want to continue to think about, you know, how literature might inform and shape our understanding about how we can serve these spaces. But I think my next project, I want to do a kind of uh, cultural history of the rowan tree. So as I mentioned before, it's this tree that, you know, it lives for about 200 years, but it's this long-standing tree in the environments, um, particularly across northern environments. Like I know, I know they sort of, they must be across Norway and, and, and that kind of thing too, and, and just the northern hemisphere more generally. Um, so I want to think about this kind of tree, which has a different kind of time scale and different age, but what value we can see in that and whether that can cause us to kind of rethink how we view trees. Do we just uh, value trees for their age or are there other things we can do too? Um, so I'm focusing on that, but it's quite hard because there's so many different names for the rowan tree. Um, so there's the mountain ash, wigan tree, witchwood, quicken tree. There's so many kind of um, regional names for this tree that it's going to be quite hard, I think, to sort of trace them. But I think I'm going to do a kind of, um, so from, say, Anglo-Saxon literature to contemporary literature, how the rowan sort of features in literature and culture more broadly. Um, but I'm only in the very initial stages of that but still very much tree-oriented. Yeah, I think there's a lot of exciting things one can can draw to. I mean, I grew up with rowans all around, so I'm also very used to them as part of the landscape. Uh, they're also quite common here around Stavanger. Mm -hmm. uh, Christina pointed out in the chat here also that the folklore link is a very rich uh, seat to begin to. And I'm thinking also, uh, in a way, a, a kind of more than human approach in looking at uh, particularly birds and trees and rowans also, uh, you yeah. know, other kinds of interactions mm -hmm. around them. So. So there's a lot of, of, of cool things there. I'm definitely looking forward to, to seeing that. Thank you. So um, we thank everybody for coming to this book talk. Um, Anna's work is so interesting in thinking about how forests, um, you know, enter into these really mixed spaces, right? So you, you have the fiction and you have the nonfiction and they meld together and you come out with these novels that are invoking um both trees as as biological beings but also trees and our ideas of trees and um that intersection is so interesting for us to consider uh, so it becomes a really a blend of literature and history um in in and anthropology all mixed into one um, and that's very exciting to see um so Anna Burton's book is Trees in 19th Century English Fiction, the Silvicultural Novel, um, which is out with Routledge now in 2021. So thank you, Anna. Great. Thank you for that. And thank you for all your questions, too.